0: So, will. Yes? In movies, I feel like a lot of times they will put a character who is barely in the film on the billing to sell tickets.
1: Sure. Absolutely. Sometimes you see it where it's based on the market. Like if there's somebody who's much more famous in a particular country, they'll make it seem like the movie is about them when they're advertising the movie in that country.
0: That happens a lot in China these days.
1: Yeah. Well, there was the window where they would have entire sequences that only appeared in the Chinese versions of movies. Like in Iron Man 3, there's a sequence where Iron Man is helped by a famous Chinese actor, and that sequence was only shown in Chinese theaters. And studios did that for a while in the first couple of years of this decade, and Chinese audiences
0: really hated it. Yeah, I can imagine. They would also just put, like, I think her name's Fan Bingbing. Yeah, she was in everything. She was in everything. And then promptly disappeared. <laughs> Or promptly was disappeared. Yeah,
1: for... It sounds like tax evasion. Yeah. But that was a weird situation because she was right on the cusp of making the real transition to, like, leading roles in American movies
0: and then vanished. Yeah, I think she's officially under house arrest now for tax evasion. Yeah. But we have no idea because in China that could be actual tax evasion, which wouldn't be a surprise, or... She's a political prisoner, which also wouldn't be a surprise. I
1: tend to think tax evasion because there has been a lot of scrutiny on the Chinese film industry recently because things loosened up there because they wanted the film industry to build up and start spreading Chinese culture both within and outside the country. But then what happened is the Chinese film industry grew kind of like Hollywood and became a place to make tons of money. And in the last couple of years, they were like, wait a minute, this all seems like not what
0: we intended. And the government's really been cracking down. Yeah. Anyway, back to cameos. Sure, cameos. I remember watching the trailer for Fallout, and I guess this may have been a more a hope than the trailer's fault but I was really hoping Angela Bassett would be a lot more important in that movie than she was. Oh, sorry about that. She was in like two scenes. She's she great was, in it. She's great in it but I feel like they kind of centered her in the trailer a bit more too because she's the only woman of color in that movie and it's a good luck to have her in the trailer and she's also Angela Bassett hugely famous actress. I think that's more the thing. Yeah that too but watching it I was just like oh where is she? She's just Behind a desk on the phone three times, max. So what made you think of that? Uh, In this movie, I rented it on iTunes, and... In the poster they use on iTunes, there's a picture of Steve Martin, who has a full musical number, a decent-sized role in this, and also John Candy, who has a scene that is less than five minutes long. That That is true. Yeah, John Candy made it onto the poster of this I mean, movie. he's doing something. He is. He is doing a lot in those five minutes, but he also is just in it for less than five minutes as a radio DJ.
1: This Kinda has an energy that reminds me of Muppet movies, which makes sense since it's directed by Frank Oz, where famous people will, like, come in, do a character, and then leave. And I don't know if you've ever seen, like, a VHS trailer for a Muppet movie, but they're pretty much split in half, where the first half is, like, here's the plot of this Muppet movie, and the second half of the movie is, like, here's all the famous
0: people who are in it. Like, in... Muppets Take Manhattan with Liza Minnelli showing up as Liza Minnelli for a brief second. Right. The one that I remember is the VHS trailer
1: for the Muppet movie. They like really highlight like Steve Martin is in this movie. And if you watch the Muppet movie, Steve Martin plays a waiter who has to be polite, but is like, you guys have terrible taste in wine. Yeah, that sounds about right. Like that's even
0: less of a role than John Candy in this movie. But it makes sense. That, you know, you rely on the names to draw in the audience. Yeah, absolutely. With Little Shop of Horrors, I also think about the original 1960 Roger Corman movie. I know where this is going. Has a very small performance by a relatively unknown actor named Jack Nicholson.
1: Yeah, who's basically playing the Bill Murray character.
0: Yeah, who now has billing on all future Productions of this movie because everyone wants you to know Jack Nicholson's in this movie. Please watch this movie.
1: Right, but it's before he did anything famous.
0: Right. Gaslight kind of has that too, where Angela Lansbury now. I mean, at the time she was giving credit, but I feel like I was surprised at how little Angela Lansbury was in it because she's Angela Lansbury. She's so good in Gaslight, though. She's so good in it. She's a bad person, but she's good in the movie. Yes. Angela Lansbury is good. Sorry. The Maid is terrible. <laughs> yes. Let's be very clear what we mean. <laughs> yes, the maid who stands on a box the whole time.
1: What's interesting about the Nicholson character is he's in the 1960 Roger Corman movie. Bill Murray plays that role in this one, but that character doesn't exist in the musical, which happens
0: between them. I can kind of see that. I mean, it's not like you have... Even though the movie's only 90 minutes, you'd think they would actually have to cut the musical down. It was an off-Broadway, pretty small show. It was
1: massively successful. Um, it was, at the time, the most successful off-Broadway production in history. It ran for five years. It won a Drama Desk Award, but it's not, like, the mega-musicals
0: of the 1980s. Right. Did it ever go back to Broadway, like, after the movie come out? Yeah, there was a Broadway production in 2003. Okay. I would be surprised if it never made its way back, because the movie is fairly well-known, too, isn't it? Yeah, and the show is, like, very much a
1: part of the musical theater canon at this point, It was written by Alan Menken and Howard Ashman, who go on to become very famous for their work for Disney, where they together did the music for The Little Mermaid, Beauty and the Beast, and Aladdin. Alan Menken did a bunch more. Ashman died during final production on Beauty and the Beast, having already written some songs for Aladdin. He was the first out gay man to win an Oscar. Oh. And he died of AIDS, literally the night that
0: Beauty and the Beast had its premiere. That is extremely sad. Yeah. The music in this movie is so good. Yeah, it's great, because it's Alan Menken and Howard Ashman.
1: I know. This movie did get an Oscar nomination for Best Original Song for Mean Green Mother from Outer Space. The first Oscar-winning song with profanity in it. That's right, so they had
0: to censor it for the Oscars broadcast.
1: It's also the first Oscar-nominated song by a villain.
0: Is it still... Are there any more? I think there's one other. I feel like... The villain songs in Disney movies are overlooked. Yeah, they tend not to be nominated. So, for example, if we look at
1: the other ones that Ashman was nominated for, he wins for Under the Sea and gets nominated for Kiss the Girl, wins for Beauty and the Beast and gets nominated for Belle and Be Our Guest, and gets nominated for Friend Like Me from Aladdin.
0: Yeah, I guess it is it is like the big numbers. Yeah, those are the ones that tend to get it. Trying to see. There's so many songs that have been nominated. Yeah.
1: Oh, the other villain song that was nominated for original song was Blame Canada from South Park, Bigger, Longer, and Uncut. Ah. No, wait, sorry. No, that's
0: the one that has profanity in no, it. No, it's both. It's a villain song and it features profanity. Ah. I guess it makes sense that the profanity-laden songs are sung by villains. Yeah, that that tracks. It tracks. <laughs> so, should we start the episode since we're just openly talking about the movie at this point? Yeah, I guess so. I didn't realize we had it. It's 2020! <laughs> <laughs> We're off the hook! Woo! Getting loose. Breaking rules. Welcome to We Love the Love, a Hollywood Romance Podcast. I'm Mark, and I'm Gay. And I'm Will, and I'm a Ginger.
1: This, of course, is a podcast where we investigate things. We dig deep into the earth, and then we take our hands out, and we see what we have found, and hopefully what we've found is an answer to the question, does Hollywood Romance actually make any sense?
0: And are these people actually dateable? Or even...
1: Likeable. It doesn't matter if the romance is the main plot or a one-scene flirtation. We will dig in and see what's there. Dig in like somebody with a shovel, digging into the earth to, like, put a
0: plant there. You know? There are no plants. I guess at the very end there's a plant in the ground. But at no point in this movie are they putting plants in the ground. But there is at the end of the movie. (laughs) There is. (laughs) So we'll keep doing this until we find an answer. And this week we're following up
1: our puppetry discussion from two weeks ago when we talked about Jack Frost with another puppet-centric movie.
0: Frank Oz's 1986 musical, Little Shop of Horrors. And what a puppet it is. It's such a good puppet! It's such a good puppet. Audrey 2 is perfect. So,
1: I have so many fun things about the Audrey 2 puppet. Obviously, they built several. There's the little one in the pot that Seymour has at the beginning of the movie, and it gets progressively larger. The final one, in like, Mean Green Mother from Outer Space, weighed a ton. That's not a colloquialism. It weighed one ton. Oh my god. And during the song, when there are, like, all the vines going all over the place, it required 60 people to operate it. Jesus Christ. Yeah. So this thing is elaborate. It's cool. It's very cool. It works. Well, it kind of works. Because what happened was the mouth, especially with the bigger puppets, was so heavy and like because of the way the materials were they couldn't get it to move as quickly as they needed to look like it was talking so they kept trying to figure it out while they were in rehearsals and at one point frank oz was rewinding the rehearsal tape they were using and he's like wait when i rewind it it looks good and he started like rewinding and fast forwarding the rehearsal tape and watching the mouth then And he's like okay so this works so what they did was they filmed the audrey two puppet. Talking at 16 frames per second instead of the normal 24 frames per second, and then in the movie, they would speed that up to 24 and it would look like the plant was speaking quickly.
0: That's brilliant.
1: What that means, though, is that everybody else needs to be behaving in a way that'll look normal at 24 frames per second. So, actors that are like walking around in a shot where Audrey 2 is talking need to like walk slowly so that it'll speed up to look like they're walking normally. If somebody is talking, they're mostly lip-syncing slowly and then dubbing in the dialogue later. That sounds like a lot of work, but I didn't see it at all. That also meant that, like, in that Mean Green Mother song, they played their recording of the song at a pace that was equivalent to 16 frames per second so that Rick Moranis could keep track of where they were in the song, but that distorted the audio so much that they had to, like, run it through tech to, like, make it understandable. But it's all a very weird experience to shoot those scenes, and if you pay
0: attention to the puppet, you can tell that it's been sped up. But it still looks great. Yeah. And you would probably have to search because I didn't notice. You have to to be looking for it. Yeah. It was just like, wow, this puppet's mouth moves great. How'd they do that? Very slowly. (laughs) Very slowly. And that's really impressive on Rick Moranis' part too then. Yeah. Rick Moranis, good actor. I like him a lot. Yes, me too. He's really good in this.
1: Yeah, this is, of course, our second Rick Moranis role. Two years earlier, he was in Ghostbusters. And this is kind of like peak Moranis, because the next year is Spaceballs, and then after that, he's got his Honey, I Shrunk franchise. Oh my god, Honey, I Shrunk the Kids. I loved that movie as a kid. I've only ever seen the trailer for Honey, We Shrunk Ourselves, because it was on a VHS that I owned. And, of course, I did Honey, I Shrunk the Audience
0: at Disney World. Honey, I Shrunk the Kids is still what I think of when I think of Rick Moranis. That's still, like, the first thing. He's so great. I'm such a fan of him. This movie is... Every time I watch it, I'm like, oh, this movie is great. This movie's a masterpiece. This movie is so good. It's kind of like the last big soundstage musical.
1: Where, like, the sets are so clearly sets. And, like, sometimes you're looking and you're like, that's a painted sky and it looks awesome.
0: Yeah, it's a movie that is definitely very inspired by the musical. And I usually prefer movies to try and take the musical and make it fit like use the new medium to its advantage like I think Chicago does a really good job with that specifically but at the same time this movie is great in the way it's set this is
1: like exulting
0: in being a musical right this is truly appreciative of the stage and like the downtown scenes in Skid Row when they show the shots of the street are clearly a stage It's not necessarily even looking like a soundstage, it looks like a stage. Yeah,
1: they filmed at Pinewood Studio in London on the 007 soundstage, which is named for being the place where they shoot James Bond movies and like those action sequences. So it's the biggest space that's there, and they built a full downtown, including elevated train tracks, which you can see in some of the shots. That's awesome. It's so, so cool. The other big technical thing they do is a lot of really cool miniatures work that you would not have seen because it's all in the ending that they changed. And I'll talk more about that when we get to the end of the storyline because I think yeah. that's the appropriate place for it.
0: I wish I had been able to see it, but it I don't was know not... if
1: it's on YouTube anywhere.
0: It wasn't on the iTunes rental version.
1: Yeah, it was only released as part of the 2012 Blu-ray release of the movie.
0: I had suddenly Seymour stuck in my head all day yesterday after watching it. It's been stuck in my head all week. This movie has the catchiest songs. That's the Menken Ashman thing. They're yes. so so good. And they're doing their thing, but with sixties music, which is also like inherently sound. There's a bounce to it, and it's and it's all earworms. Yeah, yeah, earworms. That's the word I'm looking for. Sound, not soundworms. Sound <laughs> I could not think of what it was. <laughs> what it was. Um. Oh, it is on YouTube. Great. So check I will that out. Watch that later. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Uh, the movie, of course, was directed by Frank Oz. This is his first non Muppet directorial work. He was directing The Muppets Take Manhattan when David Geffen approached Oz about making the movie. So, originally, there's a 1960 Roger Corman movie called The Little Shop of Horrors. It was made on a $30,000 budget. It that is not got a adapted. musical. Right, it's not a musical. That got adapted into the Menken Ashman Off-Broadway musical in 82. Geffen was a producer on that musical. So then he bought the rights to it with a plan to distribute through Warner Brothers, who he had a partnership with. For example, he had the same situation when he bought the rights to the movie House Ghosts, which of course became Beetlejuice. House Ghosts! House Ghosts! So, originally, I found this on Wikipedia, I have not done research to verify it, got Steven Spielberg attached to produce it, with 1980s Martin Scorsese attached to direct it. What? And Scorsese... Again, according to Wikipedia, was very excited about this and wanted to do it in 3D to make it, like, really old-school, like, 50s creature feature. I can
0: see that, especially at that time period. Yeah. I kind of wish I could see... I'm so, so, so happy we have this version, but I kind of wish I could see that version, too. I'd be so fascinated to see a Scorsese version of... Little shop of horrors. Yeah. And that one fell apart because there
1: was a lawsuit by the writer of the Corman movie that they had to sort out. They sorted that out. Then Geffen goes to Frank Oz and Oz said no at first because he thought the story felt really stage bound. He's like, I don't know how to make this into its own movie thing. And the thing that he said cracked it for him was the idea of this Greek chorus. He was like, oh, they could be this kind of magical narrators like put them on a fire escape put them in the rain not getting wet you can do all kinds of weird things with them that bumps up the weirdness of the story in a way that movies can do better than plays
0: they are very detached from the movie yes they occasionally interact with characters but only occasionally right and then i love that the little girls that are loitering outside mushniks have the names of The Greek Chorus. Yes. It's so weird, and it's kind of hard to explain, but it just works. Their names, of course, are Chiffon, Crystal, and Ronette, which are three very famous girl groups from the Motown, the Crystals, the Chiffons, and the Ronettes. Good music! It's a great way to name them. Like, it's a great tribute to the music that inspired them.
1: So, besides our Greek Chorus, our lead, as we said, is Rick Moranis, who came up in Canada, through SCTV, and then blew up in the United States with Ghostbusters. As Audrey, the studio wanted Cyndi Lauper. That would have been great. But she turned it down, and so they brought in instead Ellen Green, who was the original off-Broadway Audrey and played the part there for four years.
0: I mean, she is also perfect in the role.
1: Yeah, and it's always cool to see them decide to use some of the stage actors when it makes sense in a film adaptation. Like, on the other hand, you have Rent, which waited like, 15 years to make a movie and then it's like we're gonna use all the stage actors and people are like well none of them are 20 anymore
0: yeah they all look much too old to be doing some of the stuff they are doing in that movie but this works yes it makes sense that she originated the role because i feel like the role of audrey is very clearly tied to this woman oh yeah in addition to that we've got vincent gardenia as mr mushnik and of course i'm very into mr gardenia owning a flower shop. They honestly could have just changed the character's name to his name. Yeah. It would have removed a lot of the. Like, I was reading the original movie was very inspired by Jewish humor, and Mushnik is very clearly. Sure, and of that. Seymour Krellborn. Yeah, but at the same time. An actual person named Gardenia owning a flower shop. Come on.
1: So those are our only real
0: characters along with then, of course, Audrey 2 voiced by Levi Stubbs. From the Four Tops. Yes, indeed. They credit that in the credits. I love it when you see credits like that. Yeah, because that's the first credit in the credits and it's like Levi Stubbs from the Four Tops as Audrey 2. The breakout character from the movie. Uh, Audrey 2. I love Audrey 2. Every attempt to do an Audrey 2 on stage (laughs) uh, faces some difficulties.
1: What's the name of that Tumblr that just collects bad Audrey 2s?
0: I think it's low-budget Audrey 2s.
1: There you go. I strongly encourage people to check out that website if you want to see some truly horrifying cheap stage versions of Audrey 2.
0: There's one that's just a shirtless guy painted to look like a plant. Okay, you sent me that one? The
1: mouth is across his stomach, and I really want to know if he like writhed his stomach muscles to look like it's talking i hope so because that would be a thing to behold especially if he is singing
0: her song while doing that low budget milky whites is also a good one milky that white of course being the cow from into the woods
1: i've heard that that cow is as white as milk
0: i have also heard that your cape has gotta be as red as blood
1: <laughs> that se- that seems like some good advice Anyway, so this movie also then, like a Muppet movie, has a bunch of celebrity comedy cameos, most notably Steve Martin as Oren Scrivello, but also Jim Belushi as a licensing guy for a plant company, John Candy as the radio DJ Wink Wilkinson, Christopher Guest as the first guy to buy stuff in the flower shop after seeing Audrey too, and Bill Murray as Arthur Denton, the... Jack Nicholson roll, the man who is really into going to the dentist.
0: The masochist who is just fully getting off at the dentist's office. Yeah. The customers in this movie are acted so well. I love the deadpan way they do it.
1: Yeah, especially the Christopher
0: Guest character who just keeps hitting, like, strange and an interesting plant. Yes. <laughs> do you have change for a hundred?
1: No. Well, then I guess I'll need twice as many. Uh, what a perfect <laughs> line. Yeah, this movie is so good. And it did okay in terms of box office. It had a $25 million reported budget. I have not been able to verify this, but Frank Oz said in interviews years later that he thinks it was the most expensive movie Warners had made to that point. Wow. You think about, it, they got the biggest studio at Pinewood. They built a whole set there. Yeah. Howard Ashman, in addition to working with Mencken to write Mean Green Mother, which is a new song in the movie version. They also wrote the score and Howard Ashman wrote the screenplay for the movie. There's a lot going on in this. They've got Rick Moranis who's a big star. They've got all these comedy cameos. So it made $38 million which is not exactly what Warners was looking for from this investment. I'm sure it wasn't. It opened in 4th on December 19th, 1986, so it's a nice Christmas movie. And it opened with $3.6 million, which is like fine in that period, but again it did not, uh, it did not blow up, by any
0: means. It was the kind of thing that came
1: to be loved as a cult favorite over the
0: decades since. This is definitely a high school theater kids version of a movie musical. I definitely went to a watch party of this movie in high school. Yeah,
1: because it's a great movie musical.
0: Yeah, and it definitely has the, like, campiness and fun that high schoolers would be drawn to. Yes, 100%. Because that and Brent, I feel like, are the go-to... Depending on how edgy versus wanting to be edgy you are. My friends and I would watch the recorded Broadway production of Into the Woods, so that's who we were. Yeah, it was definitely like the tech kids were the type to watch Little Shop of Horrors and the actors would watch Rent. To feel things. Yeah, versus marveling at a puppet. Puppets are great. I love puppets. What if there were a snowman puppet? voiced by Michael Keaton, also in this movie. You know what they say, Will. Snow dad is better than no dad. So you agree that he should be in this movie? Yes, Jack Frost should be in every movie. Singing Frosty the Snowman in a very <laughs> bad parody of Bruce Springsteen.
1: It's incredible that that's the song where the guy is like, I must sign this band.
0: God damn that movie.
1: Obviously, it's only been two weeks since that episode came out, but it's been over a month since we watched it, and it's still in our heads.
0: Yes, that is where we're at it is left that deep of an emotional scar okay but i think we should move on to sunnier things on skid row and talk about this movie yes so every week we break down the romantic plotline of the movie we're watching into five points and this week doing a musical i figured we could kind of sum up the points with the songs that cover them so point number one starts with little shop of horrors and goes through skid row downtown Someone showed
1: me- to get out of here because i constantly pray i'll get out of here please won't somebody say i'll get out of here someone give me my shot or i'll rot here excuse you this movie begins with bright green text on the screen and spooky narration <laughs> yes of course this movie tells you exactly what it is right from the drop, and then we get the Little Shop of Horrors sound cue kick in, and it's just, like, so energizing. It's a perfect entrance. It's so, so good. I did note that the paragraph text ends with a three-dot ellipsis, unlike Star Wars, which always ends with a four-dot ellipsis.
0: Cool. You're so cool, Will. I'm very cool. I do want to point out that Skid Row parentheses, downtown, might be one of the very few perfect musical numbers.
1: Oh, it's so, so good.
0: It does such a good job of introducing the world, the company, the characters themselves. And also the sort of
1: interesting class themes that sneak up on how much of a role they play in this movie.
0: Yeah. It's
1: not the thing that you remember, but it is a big part of why everyone does what they do throughout the movie.
0: Right. Class is very inherently part of everything about this movie. And Skid Row is really where that is introduced, but it's done in such a way that it is always stuck in your head. Yeah. I've got it stuck in my head now. Yeah, me too. So the movie is centered on the Little Shop of Horrors, which is- Mr. Mushnick's plant shop. Yes. And they're going under. You get introduced in the first song of this song to Seymour and Audrey, who are the shop hands.
1: Yeah. Seymour was an orphan that Mr. Mushnick took in. Seymour lives
0: on a cot in the basement of the store. Yeah, it's kind of rough, but nice. It's a place to live. He feels very close to Mr. Mushnick. Yes. And I do have to say, Audrey's entrance, where you just get the shoes and, like, the snapping in the background, is just such high drama. I love it. It's one of those shots where it's just a foot, like, leaving a car, and then it kind of pans up, and in the background, you just hear a bunch of people going, like... And I was so into it. It's great. And it's interesting because it introduces her. This is almost like a very powerful introduction, classically. Like, it's how you introduce powerful women. But as soon as you get to her face, she's got a big black eye. Yeah. And so when she walks into work, Mr. Moschnigg is like, what are you doing with that guy? He treats you terribly. Yeah. So it's established very early on that Audrey is in an abusive relationship and... We also get that Seymour is in love with Audrey.
1: Yeah, we see this in part when she goes down to find out what Seymour is doing in the basement, and he is clearly very flustered and having a hard time acting like a person around her. Yes. And then... Seymour doesn't get out much.
0: No. This is when Mushnick declares, like, I'm shutting down the shop, and Seymour says, wait, I have a strange and interesting plant we could put in the window. Well, actually, Audrey says, "Oh, right, Seymour, what about that strange and interesting plant you have? Like, that could maybe help the store.
1: So she knows that he, like, she knows him well enough to know that he is taking care of all these plants in the basement. And it's like, yo, Seymour, like, speak up. You can do something here.
0: Yeah. So she's pushing him. He shows Bushnick the strange and interesting plant and says, if we put it in the window, it might draw in customers. And he says that he's named the plant Audrey too. And Audrey's like, oh, thanks for naming it for me platonically. Yeah. We'll get to this more in point, too, but she also definitely knows what's going on. She does. But as soon as he puts it down, Bushwick's like, that's not going to work, and that's when you and get then the first- And Christopher Guest walks in. Yeah. Say, that's quite a strange and interesting plant in no. your window.
1: I'm here. I might as well buy $50 worth of roses.
0: Yeah, and that's where you get the, do you have change for 100 No? Well, I guess I'll just have to buy twice as many. Can't argue with that logic. <laughs> no, it's quite solid. Can you imagine just dropping $100 on roses out of the blue? No. Also, what was that man doing in Skid Row?
1: Just walking around looking for strange and interesting plants. I
0: guess. On the
1: hunt. As one does. So after that, then we have Skid Row. Audrey is singing about all of the relationships on
0: Skid Row were terrible. Seymour's first line is just, Poor. All my life I've been poor. He also walks out into the street into the one puddle in the street. (laughs) It's so
1: pathetic in such a miserable way. Yeah, it's... Such a good song. It's such a good song. And it ends with Audrey and Seymour singing about how they've got to get out of skid row. And they're both on the corner of a building singing the same thing. But they can't see each other because the building is between them.
0: Something is always in the way between Audrey and Seymour. And for the most of the movie, that is the sadistic dentist, Oren, as played by Steve Martin. Yes, indeed. So this brings us to point number two. Which is an insight into Audrey. This is her big number called Somewhere That's Green.
1: And there's some interesting context that we get prior to this where Audrey points out, I forget to who, I just wrote down the quote. I believe it's Mr. Mushnick, um, that she doesn't want to push back on Oren too much because she says, if he does this to me when he's happy, imagine what he'd do if he got mad. We know that she frequently shows up with black eyes or at one point, with her arm in a sling. Like, this is a very physically abusive relationship.
0: Right. And the sling is also this, like, almost fishnet stocking material. Yeah, well, it's, you know,
1: you gotta look hot.
0: It's very weird. Audrey's not gonna sacrifice a look. No, Audrey is very committed to her look. She is a very depressing character. Very much so. Meanwhile,
1: the Greek chorus is interacting with her, telling her to date Seymour. And she keeps saying, like, no, I can't date Seymour. He's too good for me.
0: Yeah, she has very low self-esteem. Which is a particularly
1: depressing thing. Right, it's that self-esteem. And later on, she's telling Seymour that he has low self-image. He needs to raise his expectations, but she's not able to see that need in herself.
0: No, that's the moment where I was like, oh, my heart is broken. When she was like, I don't deserve anyone who isn't physically abusive, essentially.
1: And so that's when she sings Somewhere That's Green, which is... Kind of our second I Want song after Skid
0: Row. Yeah, so this is her talking about how she wants to move out to the suburbs. She's reading a Better Homes and Garden and pictures herself in it as a housewife. She and Seymour are married. They have kids. Seymour's mowing the lawn. There are so many like wonderful
1: details in this. There's the line about cooking like Betty Crocker and looking like Donna Reed. Which would
0: mean that she then maybe is Mary Bailey. She looks like Donna Reed? Did she build the house that they live in? I hope so. She also has a Tupperware party. That's what really killed me. Such a good touch. And there's the line about how there's plastic on all the furniture. Yeah. And they eat
1: TV dinners. This is the kind of thing where it's like, we get that this is what Audrey wants, but it also is very funny. It reminded me of Alan Menken's criminally not Oscar nominated song from 2018 when for Ralph Breaks the Internet, he wrote a Disney Princess style I Want song called A Place Called Slaughter Race, which is about how Vanellope wants to go and live in a Grand Theft Auto style game.
0: This movie is so perfect at showing the 80s deconstructions of the idealized late 50s, early 60s. Yeah,
1: it does a really nice job of walking the line between you really do care about the characters, but you're also able to laugh at a lot of the period trappings that it wants you to laugh at.
0: Right, it balances that really well, because you want this for Audrey, but... But
1: you also think that it's ridiculous.
0: Yeah, by the 80s, no one wants to eat TV dinners. On their plastic-covered couch. With their massive 12-inch screen TV.
1: And a fence of real chain link.
0: God, that song is perfect.
1: (laughs) It's so good. One thing I did notice is, even in this, her like dream sequence, where she's married to Seymour and they have kids, they sleep in separate twin beds.
0: Which is very I Love Lucy.
1: Yes. But I also think noteworthy in terms of how Audrey sees Seymour. She, like, recognizes him as a good guy that she could have a nice life with. But it's not, like, a romantic or a sexual attraction.
0: Not at this point, at least. And they actually watch I Love Lucy on their big 12-inch TV.
1: Yeah, they watch the chocolate episode, yeah. which is the best one.
0: Yeah. I wonder how much of the rights to that must have cost. I don't know, probably less in that period than it might today. Yeah. It had been in syndication, but it hadn't established its full legacy. But it is still the most famous scene in the show. Sure. And I mean like it was still a like massively significant show at the time, but
1: yeah. my impression is just that like the whole rights market was different in the 80s and 90s than it is today.
0: Yeah. So this is it establishes Audrey's dreams, but Later in the movie, we get to point number three, which is Steve Martin's song, Dentist, and what comes after that, where we actually see the relationship. We actually see Audrey's interactions with Oren. I am your dentist, and I enjoy the career that I'm i I'm your dentist, and I get
1: off on the plane. I am really really love yeah, so we're introduced to Oren. As a bad boy on a motorcycle, singing about how he's such a bad boy, and everyone should be really impressed with how intense he is, and he loves to cause pain. And then the refrain cuts into this exultant song about being a dentist.
0: Right. He talks about how he used to torture animals, and that his mom says you have to find a way to channel that pain-causing productively. And so he became a dentist. Yeah, and mama says, you'll be a dentist, which is the chorus. So he becomes a dentist, and the whole song is him, like, using the worst kind of dental tools to cause pain. He takes laughing gas instead of giving it to his patients. Because he likes getting high while he's doing his work. The best thing in this song is when there
1: is a giant puppet of a mouth that we see flapping while he and the Greek chorus
0: sing on the outside of the mouth. So, like, the camera is from inside the mouth looking out at him. And you hear the sound of a dental drill hit the tooth, and I shuddered. It's so good. I hate that sound. So, after we've been introduced to Oren... We see that things are going really well
1: in Mushnick's shop, that Audrey 2 has been a huge hit. There's a lot of business then, so they're getting a lot of of customers. And Seymour is a minor local celebrity, like, he got to go on the radio. Audrey is now in charge of making the flower arrangements for people
0: who buy flowers at the shop. Because she's very good at it.
1: Right. And she tells Seymour, like, hey, Seymour, you're doing great. You should... You know, go live your life some more. And Seymour's like, No, 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 I'm like I'm just like a loser who lives in a cot beneath a flower shop. And she says, No, you have low self image, you need to raise your expectations and she offers to help him buy some new clothes. And it's like kind of datey what they're proposing. Right. Like they're gonna go out to a department store and buy some fancy
0: clothes. But Orange shows Marana's, up,
1: frankly, is already a huge cutie,
0: so this will just be even better. Yeah. And then Orin shows up, and you see that he forces her to actually call him Doctor. Which is creepy and gross. And hits her, and it's very painful to watch, and Seymour is helpless to stop it.
1: Now, the thing that we have not mentioned at this point in our description of what happened is that Seymour's strange and interesting plant feeds on blood. Yes, it can only exist off of blood. So Seymour has been cutting his hand open and feeding it blood, and we do see this having some effects. He seems kind of lightheaded
0: and, and dazed at times from blood loss. And so we have a big Audrey too, but not as big as she gets, but a big Audrey too. and he's leaving one day, and it falls over. And this is where you first hear it talk, and it feed says, me. Feed me. And he's basically like, I don't have any more blood. And then the plant sings a song and convinces him, some people deserve to die, like, Maybe that
1: dentist who keeps abusing your lady love. So maybe you can feed me, get rid of a bad man, and get what you want. And this is... The Faustian bargain that Seymour strikes. He will get the life that he wants. He'll get money. He'll get Audrey. He'll get success
0: if he feeds the plant. Yes. So he needs to commit a murder. And so he goes to the dentist's office and claims he needs a root canal. And the whole Bill Murray thing happens before this. That nah, doesn't matter. <laughs> it doesn't matter. It's not all. about romance. Nope. So while this is happening, he pulls the gun and Oren's like, oh, you want to play it this way? And, you know, ties him down and tries to give him a root canal. But puts on a full mask, jetpack looking thing. It's like a whole contraption. It's got bulbs
1: on the side
0: to breathe in. He's
1: like inhaling and exhaling laughing gas.
0: Yeah. And somehow he doesn't realize that you also need oxygen to live and he dies. Yeah. He
1: overdoses. Seymour never has to shoot him,
0: but Seymour does bring him back to the plant, chops him up, and feeds him to the plant. To Audrey, two. Not Audrey, one. That would be bad.
1: Mr. Mushnik sees Seymour chopping up the body and is like, Seymour, what the heck is wrong with you? You committed a murder. And you chopped up the body. Like, I have to turn you in. But he ultimately decides he's like, I really care about you. Run away and never return. And just tell me how to take care of Audrey too. And Seymour's like, I can't do that. I can't let this situation escalate further. And as they're arguing, Mr. Mushnik
0: looks into Audrey 2's mouth and is himself eaten. Yeah. It's very sad, but Audrey's free of Orin and Seymour is like trying to make his moves and things are continuing to go well. And this is where we see Seymour starting to
1: feel increasingly uncomfortable with the situation because he is continuing to find success. He's like getting features written about him in major magazines. He's going on TV, but it is at the price of human lives,
0: right? And he also feels trapped and realizes that he could get enough money to make it out. So he tells Audrey, let's get married and run away together. And we get in point number four, Suddenly Seymour.
1: Suddenly Seymour standing beside you. You don't need no makeup. Don't have to pretend. Suddenly, Seymour is here to provide you sweet understanding. Seymour's your friend. Great song. What a jam. Uh, It's so good. This is an interesting song, though, because in this song, too, he's, like, convincing Audrey to marry him to run away with him. Yes. And from her text in the song it's like she decides over the course of it like you know what like this is something that i could go and do but i always feel partially through this and through the way that she presents him in somewhere that's green that audrey recognizes intellectually that seymour would treat her better than orin and like cares about him but it's not the level of romantic
0: attraction that seymour feels no she's not fully is in love as seymour is she's more attracted to the idea of having a man than she is to seymour yeah and just she likes him Yeah, but just like a stable man. But he says, I have to do this one more thing. You go home and pack and then we'll leave tomorrow to try and get the last big payout. Because there was going to be a TV crew coming and he could get paid for his TV appearance and then they'd be good. And he tells Audrey too, like, I'm not giving you any more food. I'm going to leave you here to die. I'll run to the store, get you some meat from the market, and that'll be your last meal. Yeah. And surprisingly, Audrey 2 is not too happy about this. So she calls up Audrey 1 on the phone. Yes. And basically is like, look, I'm a talking plant. You should come investigate. And Audrey comes over and she is astounded and horrified by this
1: enormous talking plant with big teeth and a nasty attitude. And Audrey 2 starts to try to devour her. It's wrapping tentacles around her and drawing Audrey into its mouth.
0: And then Seymour shows up and pulls out Audrey... As Audrey is in the mouth with yes. just legs, not Ellen Green's real legs, but legs yeah. kicking outside the mouth. And so Seymour pulls her out and saves her. And this is point number five when Audrey 2 sings, it's big number Mean Green Mother from Outer Space. And the big fight scene. I'm just a mean green mother from outer space, and I'm dead. I'm just a mean green mother from outer space, and it looks like you've been had. I'm just a mean green mother from outer space, so get off my back and get off my face, because I'm mean be and and I am dead.
1: Right, they have a fight, and they eventually bring down the building on top of Audrey 2. And then Seymour finds... Well, actually, no, before that... They, so they run out and they're like hanging out outside. Seymour is like helping Audrey pull herself together. And that's when Jim Belushi shows up. Oh, right. And he is like, hello, I represent this plant company. We would love to take cuttings of Audrey 2 and sell them around the country. You could be fabulously wealthy and we could have Audrey 2s all over the country. And Seymour freaks out because he's like, oh my gosh, this is what Audrey 2 wanted all the time to be spread around the world and eat everything. Right, So that's when
0: he goes in to have his showdown with Audrey too,
1: which is Mean Green Mother from Outer Space.
0: Yes, because he realizes he needs to actually end it and kill the plant. So they have their fight and ultimately
1: bring down the building on top of Audrey.
0: Right. And then he finds a live wire and shocks the plant too. Which is great. And it like explodes. (laughs) Yep. And then we basically cut to the end where Seymour and Audrey have bought the house they have their somewhere that's green. Somewhere that's green, and she's in her dress, and presumably they live happily ever after. But Except, Bum bum bum. In their flowers, there's a tiny little Audrey II and it smiles at you. So that was not the original end of the movie. In the musical, Audrey's eaten by Audrey II, and then
1: Seymour himself winds up being eaten by Audrey II, and the plants spread throughout the world.
0: So Audrey II wins.
1: Yes. This was the original plan, and they shot that ending. They spent $5 million making this ending, largely with miniatures, where you then see like a miniatures city and giant Audrey 2s like rampaging through the cities. It looks like a 50s monster movie, like Godzilla or something like that. It's pretty awesome. The Audrey 2s like going through the city and like the army fighting them. It looks amazing. So Geffen opposed making this ending because he was like, I don't know about this sad ending, but gave them to the go ahead. They made it. And then they were testing the movie, and audiences who had, like, loved and cheered and, like, clapped for musical numbers throughout the movie were dead silent during that ending, like, from Seymour and Audrey's deaths through the end, and hated it. Yeah, it did not test well. Yeah, so in test audiences, they asked the audience to score a movie out of 100, and according to interviews with Frank Oz, they needed to hit, like, about a 55 to get a release, and this movie got a 13. (laughs) Jesus Christ. Like,
0: audiences hated it. It was so low that the production team really worried Warners would not release the movie. And so that's why we have the ending we know today. Yeah, so Frank Oz, his theory is that it's because, like, on stage you can kill your leads and then they come out for a
1: bow, whereas in a movie you kill them and they are dead. Yeah. And, like, you can kill them if it feels like they died for something, like they died for a cause or to help somebody, but in this they were just, like, destroyed. People don't like
0: the good guys to lose. There's an Audrey 2 that climbs up and wraps itself around the Statue of Liberty. Yeah, so... People were unhappy and then they needed to make a happy ending. Yeah. So they did. Now, this ending was included on the original
1: 1998 DVD release, but it was recalled because David Geffen objected since the ending they included was a black and white print That was missing a lot of sound a lot of special effects because when they were putting together the dvd that was the only copy of the ending warner brothers had and geffen was like how dare you put out this inferior product and he was like i have a color version so they actually recalled that dvd like just days after it went on the market so those original ones are collector's items now i can imagine and they fully produced the ending like with sound effects and everything
0: and put it on the 2012 Blu-ray. And it it looks pretty cool. Yeah, they showed it somewhere, and the audience was much more receptive to it in 2012, I read. If you see
1: the stage version, there's actually a whole song about the plants spreading and taking over. In place of
0: Mean Green Mother, because they just have to fight and get eaten. Right. So, after watching <laughs> this whole plant-eating-people movie, do you find the romance of Little Shop of Horrors to be believable? I guess? Basically, what we've got at the core of this is...
1: Audrey, one, is in an abusive relationship with Oren. Seymour is looking on in love with her. And Audrey gets out of the relationship because her boyfriend overdoses on laughing gas. And then she and Seymour eventually get together. So,
0: I don't know. Do you think it's believable? I think with the somewhere that's green, that makes the ending believable. Because she's clearly already fantasizing about Seymour, even if it's just what Seymour represents. Okay. So, it makes sense that they do end up together.
1: I believe that, yeah. So... Every movie we rate the believability of the romance on a 10-point scale, where zero is totally unbelievable and 10 means we believe
0: all of it, where would you put Little Shop of Horrors? I don't think it's fully believable, for sure. No.
1: Again, the male rival dies of a laughing gas overdose.
0: Yeah, just the psychology of abuse is very tough to, you know, deal with in a movie like this. So it's hard to know. Although
1: I do like the sort of divided emotional intelligence of Audrey being able to realize Seymour's inferiority complex, but not be able to see it in herself.
0: Yeah, I think it's done really well. I just think, like, getting over it so fast and just moving on might be harder than the movie makes it seem.
1: Sure, although I think there is something to Audrey then, sort of for a sense of security, rushes immediately into another relationship. We don't really see her process any of it, but that doesn't necessarily mean it's not happening.
0: Yeah. So, I don't know, I'd say, like, a seven- Maybe a. put a seven on this. Yeah. I think a seven sounds good.
1: Do you think Seymour or Audrey would be dateable?
0: Um, no. No, not really. Seymour's a murderer. And Does he murder anybody? Not that we see, but attempted murderer at least. Yeah, he is less morally culpable than Sweeney Todd. Yes, that is true. But that's not the bar you want to be using for <laughs> yourself. No. And then Audrey honestly should be on her own to deal with some deep-seated drama. Yeah.
1: So if you did have to pick one person in this movie to date, who would it be?
0: Hmm. Probably one of the Greek chorus. Okay. Maybe chiffon. I like the idea of, you know, being out of the world yet commenting on it. That is hence, basically what a podcast yeah, is. So there you go. I podcasting. I think it's Christopher Guest for me. Yeah, it's a good choice. He's too. got a
1: fun, weird energy and he would bring me lots of flowers. <laughs> yeah.
0: I guess the next question doesn't really apply.
1: (laughs) So, yeah, obviously this movie is based on a musical, so the question of whether it should be made into a musical is pointless. So I'm going to ask you instead, should this movie be made into a Fox Kids animated series? (laughs) No, but it happened anyway. Yes, it did. In 1991, Fox Kids aired 13 episodes of a show called Little Shop about a teenage nerd named Seymour who sprouts a talking Venus flytrap from a 200-million-year-old seed. It can talk and hypnotize people, and they go on wacky adventures, sometimes involving Audrey, Seymour's crush, and the daughter of Mr. Mushnick in this virgin. There are a few songs per episode, and when Audrey Jr. sings, Audrey Jr. always raps. Good God. Many of these episodes are on YouTube. Mark, you should check them out. I was just about to
0: check if they were. They are weird. Oh, God. I watched two of them. Well, I think I know what I'll do later tonight after I finish my homework. Excellent. All right. I don't want to hold
1: you up until then, so we should wrap this thing up.
0: Yeah, I think that about does it for this movie. Next week, we are looking at um, further stage adaptations, and yes. we're returning to the work of Mike Nichols with his first directorial movie, 1966's Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf? Have you seen this movie? I have not. I'm very excited. Have you seen the play? No.
1: I oh, know rules so hard about it.
0: I'm, oh! I'm currently reading Virginia Woolf for one of my classes. I've never read any Virginia Woolf, but I love this play. The thing I'm reading is called Three Guineas, which is her very sarcastic response to a man... Mark, a- it's pronounced Ginny. <laughs> it's her very sarcastic response to a man asking her how women can help prevent war. What's the answer? Um, Basically... <laughs> shut up women are oppressed you dick why do we have to solve men's problems all right that's fair yeah but a lot more to it than that but it's really funny all right well until
1: then you can follow the show on facebook and twitter at Love the Love Pod, and you can email us questions or movie suggestions at lovethelovepod at gmail.com please make sure to rate review and subscribe that really helps other people to find the show especially reviews on apple podcasts last question what's the best piece of dating advice you got from little shop I think being on TV worked really well for
0: Seymour, so maybe that's the answer. Get yourself on television. I mean, we are a firmly anti murder podcast, but it seems that killing your rival worked out pretty great for Seymour. He didn't kill him, Mm -hmm. he stood by and allowed him to die.
1: Okay. Well, until next time, I'm gay and I'm a ginger. So between the two of us, we know everything there is to know about romance. Bye. Bye!